Well, good morning, church family. That's a pretty bold claim, that song we just sang, that we worship the one true God without equal. There's only one. The God of Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. That's a good word, wouldn't you say? Welcome to Windsor Road. If this is your first Sunday here, uh, I'm Randy, and uh, we're just delighted to get to worship with you. And I would like, you hear us pray individually throughout the service, but uh, I'd like for us to pray the corporate prayer that uh, I believe we all know. And, and if you don't, it's okay. Just, just listen to a crowd of people praying the same prayer. Uh, it's, 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 it's beautiful. It's the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. This picture here is a picture of Army Staff Sergeant Ron Sester Nino, and he is sparring with his blindfolded son, Luca, in a Taekwondo session. Only Luca doesn't know that that's his father. Um, because when the sparring session started, Luca began sparring with his instructor. Luca thought that his father, Ron, was still in the Middle East on deployment. But halfway through, the instructor and Ron swapped. And so Ron was chasing Luca around the mat, sparring. And finally, Ron said, is that all you got? And Luca paused. And this next picture is what happened. He ripped off his blindfold, and he could not believe that his dad was standing there right before him. And he collapsed into his father's strong arms. Hmm. That, church family, is a hope that came through. And I want to talk about a hope that comes through this morning. I want to talk about hope today. What did you hope for this past week? Hmm? Did you hope for a reunion, maybe, with someone? Did you hope for a full night's sleep? Did you hope for a day without pain? Did you hope your inbox was empty? Did you hope for your favorite parking spot? 
you hope for that job offer? That phone call telling you? A letter in the mail? Did you hope for clear test results? Did you hope that your insurance would pay your medical bills? Hope. What we're going to see today is that hope is not something you do. Hope is something you have. Specifically, hope is something in you because of what someone else has done for you. I'll say that again. Hope is something in you because of what someone else has done for you. Biblical hope. The confident expectation that God will keep his promises to those who trust in him. That's, that's what hope is according to the scriptures. Let's just break that down. The confident expectation. So hope has something to do with our emotions. Hope affects us. Hope hits the heart. The confident expectation. So it's future-oriented. And it's that the future is going to be good. That whatever it is, as mysterious as it is, whatever we can't figure out, that at some time in the future, it's going to be something good. It's future good-oriented. That God will keep his promises which tells us something about God's disposition toward us, that he is favorable to us, he is kind to us, he is merciful to us, he is gracious to us, and that he has the ability, that not just that, well, I, I would if I could. No, he can. He's able. He's, he actually has the power to follow through to those who trust him. To those who put their confidence in Him. To those who depend upon Him and lean upon Him. Biblical hope. And I want you to see what this looks like in action today at a passage of Scripture. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 24, verses 36 to 49. And we have initiated a season of emphasis called the simple commission and it's just going back to what it is God has called us to do as a church and we believe from the scriptures that God is calling us just as he has called since Christ rose from the dead that God is calling us to be disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. To be disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. And we're looking at the commissioning passages in the gospel. And today we're going to look at Luke 24, 36 to 49. And the theme here has to do with hope. Where are we putting our hope? Hope is not something you do. Hope is something you have because of what someone else has done. And so follow along with me as I read verses 36 to 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's Word. So our verses this morning here begin with two disciples who race back to Jerusalem to the larger group of disciples to share with them this incredible Bible study that they had by this incredible teacher. No, he's not just a teacher. He is the Lord. Look at verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's Simon Peter. And these disciples tell how only hours before uh, they had plotted their way home, heads down, feet dragging, hopeless and sullen over Christ's death. And suddenly this mysterious stranger appears and asks them why they're so sullen, why they're so sad. And they're looking incredulous at this stranger like, well, how can you not know what's been going on as to explain why we're so sad. And they start talking about the crucifixion, Jesus. And here's what I want you to see in verse 21. After they had updated this stranger, they made this comment. But we had hoped, verse 21, that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they had in their mind expectations about what they thought the Messiah should do and be. But we had hoped. They had hoped that Jesus would overthrow their Roman oppressors. They had hoped that Jesus would restore Israel to her premier state, as in the days of David and Solomon. They had hoped for an earthly restored power. Power that was political power. Power to conquer nations and kill enemies and destroy armies. They wanted Rome out. But the one whom they hoped would conquer Rome was in fact crucified by Rome. And he wasn't just beheaded. And he wasn't just hanged. He was crucified. The humiliation of crucifixion is what Rome does to would-be messiahs. And in verse 35, they tell how this mysterious stranger 
walked them through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and how Christ had to suffer these things before entering into his glory. And, and, and did you see? You see, the scriptures are given to give us hope. And they invited him home for dinner and, and he came home with them. And he broke the bread, blessed the meal. And right then, Luke says that their eyes were open. And they saw that it was Jesus. They had received the divine optometry of hope. Hope. And, and so they are racing back. Verse 35. Were not our hearts ablaze as he opened the scriptures to us? And so they raced back to tell the others this. And while they were telling the others this, suddenly without warning... Christ appeared. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? No, no, no pyrotechnics, no fanfare. Luke simply says, Jesus stood in their midst. And I want you to pay attention to the specific verbs that uh, describe Jesus in these verses. He stood, he said, he showed, he took, he ate, he opened their minds. What's Luke saying? Luke is saying this is no ghost. This is no spirit. This is no vision or apparition or hallucination or a dream. This is someone with a body. This is someone with a body. See my hands and feet. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. What kind of a body did Jesus have? I mean, how could it be solid and real with flesh and bones and yet eat broiled fish and, and yet be able to appear and disappear at will? What sort of a body are we talking about anyway? I want that. Paul tells us, uh, and it's just a simple word. It's the word glory, a body of glory. Philippians 3, 21 says that Jesus will one day transform our lowly body so that it will be to the likeness of his glorious body, literally his body of glory. It was a, it was a glory body. That's what it was. And it was recognizable, visible, tangible. And it, I mean, it was distinct in that Jesus' body was at home in this realm and the heavenly realm. And that's our hope. That one day Christ will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glory body. And, 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 when you hear Paul say lowly in Philippians 3, Paul's not being negative, he's being realistic. What does he mean by lowly body? Well, it means that our bodies are prone to disease, prone to cancer, prone to hunger, prone to fatigue, prone to temptation, prone to perishing, prone to mortality. Those are 
that's, that's what Paul means when he's talking about our lowly body. And so, you know, we, we, God created these bodies, and we are to steward these bodies, and yet uh, we are not to idolize our bodies. And Paul says in Philippians 3, he talks about some who treat the body like it's their God. In fact, this is what Paul says, their God is their belly. Well, our hope is in the one who will transform our bodies into the likeness of his glory body. Isn't that good news? What that means is that one of these days, Jesus, he's going to give my belly a makeover. Oh, come Lord Jesus, do that. Huh? I mean, and it, when he does, it will be exalted and splendid and beautiful and glorious and without sin. So the Bible teaches that the Lord is pro-body. God raised Jesus and Christ Jesus will one day raise us and his resurrection promises a radically new future, a, a promise of life out of death for those in him, righteousness for the unrighteous, a new creation for a creation swamped with evil and death. And this not for any old world, for this world. And not just any old God, Israel's God. You see what Luke is doing? Luke is pleading with us to deposit our hope in the one who does for us what we cannot do ourselves. And he's, he's telling us where true security lies. He's telling us that hope begins and ends in Jesus. That hope is not some escapist fantasy. Hope is not a feeble maybe. Hope is grounded in a person. Have we become so familiar with the events concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we blind ourselves to the truth that no one saw this coming. No one. Pontius Pilate didn't. The Pharisees didn't. Then their view, you know, the, the, the dead don't rise from the dead bodily. And yet here was one, completely dead, raised to life, completely alive. I mean, I mean, I mean and he was dead, dead. There's nothing fictitious about crucifixion. There's nothing unclear about crucifixion. While crucified, Christ cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? There's nothing more abandoned than crucifixion. And there's nothing more empowering than resurrection. And Jesus experienced both. And the disciples? Well, while Jesus stood and spoke and said and showed and ate, the disciples, they were startled, then frightened, then disbelieved, then marveled. But none of them said, I knew it. I knew it all along. None of them said that. But there Jesus stood. And look in verse 36, his first words. Peace to you. Peace, that's more than just a cultural greeting. No, Jesus is echoing the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52, 7, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation to Zion. Your God reigns. In other words, peace to you 
means your God reigns. So Jesus isn't just saying, howdy. He's making a self-pronouncement. He's saying, your God reigns. Not Tiberius, not Rome, not the legions, but God himself. And I am your God. Verse 39, it is I myself. Look at my hands and my feet. Why hands and feet? Because that's where the nails were. But no more. No more. It's I myself. See, what we're getting at here is the purpose behind Christ's personal bodily appearance. I mean, why didn't just the angel announce, he's not here, he is risen, now go make disciples? Why, why Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself showed up in a body. He did this. Well, what was the purpose behind that and all the other appearances that he made to various groups of people over the next 40 days? What was that about? I'll tell you what that was about. And this is where it gets personal. Because, because my concern is that we're listening to what you would probably expect to hear in a church service from someone like me. But inside you're wondering, okay, well, how, how is all this relevant to my life? Here's how it's relevant. Because Jesus' personal bodily appearances written down by witnesses who saw this, those appearances alleviate the one fear in everybody's heart here. And it's the one fear worldwide in every person, in every culture, every nation on earth. It is the fear of death. It's the fear of death. Oh, you may not have been afraid of death this morning, but because you didn't think you were going to die. You made it here. So did I. But then we read of yet another slate of killings in the Odessa Midland, Texas. And it's, you know, it, it, it happens out there until it comes right in here. And we try to you know, we try to put it off, living in some state of denial as if, you know, death's not going to happen to us. But the ratio's pretty substantial, isn't it? One out of every one person dies. Ninety-five-year-olds? Five-year-olds? How do we understand and interpret the inescapable fact that no one gets out of this world alive? I mean, how can life have meaning with the inevitability of death? And there are some voices that say, well, it doesn't have meaning. Uh, for instance, a few years ago, there was an article in a journal called The New Scientist. Here's what it said. The harsh answer is, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. How's that for good news? Uh, when it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. 
If you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and the sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. Against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? And so this is what the, the article goes on to say. Well, the, the way that a human life can have any meaning is that you've got to construct a belief. Belief in a God or gods softens the brutality of existence by inspiring the universe with meaning. So in other words, according to the article, life has no meaning, so we have to manufacture meaning through constructing belief in God. And, well, that's just sad. That's just sad. And ironically, um, there's not any science in that article because it's not about science. It's about worldview. It's about how you choose to see the world and how you how you choose to interpret science, you see. And the scripture makes it quite clear that God has planted eternity in the human heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11. You're not a a random blip of matter and energy. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And, and, and by eternity, we mean more than, well, I'll just remember you in my thoughts. Or we mean more than, well, I'll establish a scholarship or an endowed chair or foundation in your name. Or we mean more than naming a building after you. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher. He's a believer. He's a Christian. He told about a seven-year-old boy who had a cousin who died. The cousin was three years old. And the seven-year-old was asking his mother about his three-year-old cousin's death. Mom, where's Billy now? Well, mom was an atheist. And so... She kind of gave the fertilizer explanation. Well, he died and you know, went back to the earth, and his body will decompose and become fertilizer for the flowers. And so, so the next spring when you see the flowers, you can think of your cousin. And, and, and when the seven-year-old heard this, he, he, he ran away screaming, I don't want him to be fertilizer. And you know why, don't you? Because telling a seven-year-old that death is like another stage of growth is like telling a quadriplegic that paralysis is another stage of exercise. Anybody here feel comforted at the thought of being recycled fertilizer? According to the Bible... Death is not what that worldview suggests. See, that worldview suggests that you know, death happens because it's natural. And the Bible clearly says there's nothing natural about death. 
Death is not how it should be. There's a part of us that when we gather around a funeral, there's a part of us that should protest this because death rips us away from people that we love. Death leaves us feeling lonely. Death makes us feel regret. As death approaches, we wonder if we've lived as we should, and the answer is nearly always no. We have regrets and doubts and anxieties and worries. Have I been good enough, generous enough, loving enough? Why do you think the thief prayed to Jesus while on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Because he was looking for some place to put whatever hope he had while he was still on this earth. Over and over, Scripture affirms death is not natural. God did not create us to age, weaken, fade, or die. God did not create this world for fathers and daughters and husbands and wives and mothers and sons to be torn from one another in death. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. Death is a disruption in God's original design due to humanity's sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is the sending of his immortal son who entered this sinful mess to rescue us. That's what we read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How did Christ destroy the evil one? He destroyed the evil one by removing Satan's most lethal weapon against us, unforgiven sin. Fear of death enslaves and makes us timid and makes us selfish hoarders. Jesus died and rose to proclaim, I have defeated your worst enemy. You are no longer slaves to sin. In me, you are God's children. And so, so that liberates us. That, li that liberates us to truly mourn when we are around the casket. Because when we mourn, ours is a hopeful mourning. When you attend a funeral or you're in a critical care unit room or you sit beside your father in hospice or you're in the ER waiting room while your pastor is about to enter to give you some news you don't want to hear. When you're there, you don't, you know what? You don't have to try to hold it all together because Somebody else already does. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. Ephesians 1.10 says, God's plan is the uniting of all things in him. In him. So through his resurrection body, appearing visibly, tangibly, Jesus demonstrated that all authority is his and that he has the power to keep his promises. Promises that he will be with us, that he is with us, that he will change us and bring good out of whatever tragedy comes to us. 
That's why Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Please don't leave here thinking that the pastor taught you to have hope in hope. (laughs) Hope by itself is powerless. Your hope is only as good as whatever we anchor it to. And our hope is anchored to Christ. To know Him, trust Him, lean on Him, drill deeply into Him, to do that individually and as a community, as a church family. And when we gather as a church family and outsiders observe us, they say, these people, these people treat Christ seriously. That they take the gospel seriously more than anything else in life. And that affects how they act toward one another and serve one another and teach and receive teaching. And it affects how they do medicine and keep books and construct buildings and practice law and enforce the law and do public safety and service. And those outsiders then conclude, well, they're not just a room of individual peoples. They are an embassy, an embassy of hope. And we are the ambassadors sharing the message of hope. And Jesus says, here's the commission. Here is what I want you to share. Verse 47, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins based on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In his name, that means you never speak a word on your own behalf from here on out. You you only speak on behalf of the king. And the message is a message of repentance. The word repentance just simply means to turn away from and turn toward, to do an about face. It means deciding that you were wrong and trying to manage your life and be your God and that Christ is the most competent person to tell you how to live your life. Repentance is the realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things. Repentance is a decision to follow Christ and repentance is a way of life as his pilgrim on the path to peace. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is powerful. Forgiveness is the lock on the door. Christ has closed on your past. To all nations. To all nations. Christ is the center where multiple ethnic socioeconomic groups gather in love as one for no other reason than for the one person they all share, Jesus. Through him, by him, for him. We are a people of hope as his embassy of heaven. When when our community sees our relationships and our worship and our interaction and our quality of life, there is a heaven. This is a piece of heaven. See, that's our commissioning. And they ask us, why do you really believe this? And we can say what we see in Luke 24. 
three witnesses testify. First, the eyewitnesses. This, this is just, this is just has eyewitness account all over it. The second witness is the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. And the third witness, verse 49, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, uniting us together as one family. And you know what? No sermon, no song, no prayer, no word. No, we, we can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. And so that means, that means when we go to work tomorrow, we go as spirit led believers. We enter the office, the cubicle, the classroom, the clinic, the fire station, the police cruiser, the warehouse, as an ambassador, as a spirit-led ambassador of hope. Hope is not just about the life to come. Hope is about bringing the life to come into this life. And when that happens, hospitals are built and wells are dug and women are freed from sexual slavery and children and warring tribes reconcile and forgive and the office is more pleasant and people are empowered and neighbors are loved and served and parties are thrown and forests are restored and art is created and children are taught and schools are built and the elderly are dignified and cars are repaired. Jesus, our hope, calls us to be agents of hope. So you bring hope with you into whatever room you walk into this week. The confident expectation that God will keep his promises to those who trust him. Oh, that's our mission. To leave this place fully confident that because Jesus lives, the body he has, we will one day have. One more sentence, and then I'm going to pray. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Amen.